Hello, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are on planet Earth. My name is Andres Velasco. I'm a professor of public policy and the dean of the School of Public Policy here at the LSE. And I am very, very pleased to be chairing this event today and very pleased also to welcome Professor Ron Dybert to the LSE. But before I introduce Ron and tell you more about today's event, let me make an announcement or two. This is a double launch event. It is a launch of a book, at least in the UK, but it is also a celebration and the launch of a double degree between the London School of Economics and uh, the Monk School of Global Affair as, sorry, Affairs at the University of Toronto. Um, this will be a double degree in which students um, can do one year at one institution, a second year at the other institution, and as the uh, name indicates, gain two degrees, a Master in Public Administration from the LSE and a Master of Global Affairs from Toronto. Needless to say, this is an opportunity for students to study public life, public affairs, public administration, public policy at two of the world's leading research institutions. So um, if you like public policy, that's why you're joining today's event, or you have a friend or a colleague or a classmate who's interested in this kind of thing, please spread the good word out. We are very, very excited about this new double degree. And of course, for Twitter, um, users in the audience, the hashtag, hashtag, sorry, for today's event is hashtag LSE Monk. So as usual, this is an online event which is being recorded and uh, presuming no technical difficulties, there will be a podcast of the event available. After Ron's presentation, we will have a Q&A and as part of the Q&A, just feel free to submit the um, the questions in writing into the uh, Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. And I will take those questions and uh, ask the questions uh, of Ron. And last thing that I should say as, a, as, as the introduction, that this is an event that is part of the broader LSE's Shaping the Post-COVID World Initiative, which is a series of conversations on the direction that the world is taking after the COVID crisis. If we are after the COVID crisis and not perhaps still in it, but hoping to get out uh, sooner rather than later. Okay, enough, uh, um, enough announcements. Let me move on now and introduce Professor Ron Dybert, who's a professor of political science at the Monk School of Affairs and Public Policy. And he's also affiliated with the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto. And at the same university, he is the director of the Monk School's Citizens Lab. Uh, and the Citizen Lab is an interdisciplinary lab focusing on research, development, and high-level strategic policy and legal engagement on information, communications technologies, human rights, and global security. Ron has a new book out. The book is called The Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society, and that is the subject of uh, today's event. So I'm going to hand it over to Ron, um, who will uh, take uh, 10, maybe 15 minutes to tell us about the main ideas, the main points in the book. And then I will take advantage of the chair's privilege, ask him a couple of questions, and then open it up to a dialogue with the audience. So without further ado, Ron, once again, we are very, very happy to have you at the LSE, and the floor is yours. Over to you. 
Thank you so much, Professor Velasco, Andre. Uh, it's a pleasure to meet you, and I'm really thrilled to be here uh, for the launch of this joint degree. Uh, I've spent many happy occasions at the London School of Economics, and to learn now that our students will be able to enjoy both uh, excellent programs and, and come out of it with a, a dual degree is really exciting. And I hope this means that I'll be able to travel to London more myself, maybe, and come visit people and likewise hope to uh, receive you in, in Toronto at, at some point in time. Uh, so as Andre said, this uh, presentation today uh, is about my book, Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society. And uh, there is a UK version of the book. So I, I just want to mention briefly September Publishers, my publishers in the UK, um, thank you for putting that out. Um, uh, the book was written actually um, at the very beginning of the pandemic in January 2020, when we all went into lockdown. Uh, it was a bit fortunate for me because I immediately cancelled all my travels and uh, locked myself in a room out of health necessity and buckled down and had a lot of fun writing this book. Um, so for those of you who don't know the, the background, uh, this book was written for the CBC Massey Lecture Series. So for those of you who aren't Canadian, you may not be familiar with the Massey Lectures. Let me tell you a little bit about this. Uh, for those of you in the UK, you may know, of course, about the Wreath Lectures. So the Massey Lectures are very similar to the Wreath Lectures. They're usually delivered annually by a prominent public intellectual and uh, broadcast over the radio uh, nationally in Canada. And then always with the Massey Lectures, there is an accompanying book. Uh, as a student, I devoured the books of the Massey Lectures. So we've had some amazing Massey Lectures over the decades, Martin Luther King Jr., Noam Chomsky, John Kenneth Galbraith, Ursula Franklin, all of these people, C.B. McPherson, important member of my own department, uh, all of these people were um, uh, inspirational to me. I, I, I literally gobbled up these books. And um, when I was asked to deliver one myself, I have to say uh, it was a bit surreal. Uh, I felt like I was uh, stepping through the looking glass here and, and had this opportunity um, the, to do something that for me was uh, truly phenomenal. So it was a great honor uh, just to be able to do this. But also it was, it was also kind of fun and a great opportunity because it allowed me to write in a different manner for a different audience. So these lectures are not necessarily meant for an academic audience, although I obviously wanted to write something that my colleagues uh, wouldn't say is uh, rubbish. <laughs> so I had to uh, come up with something um, that, that would pass muster with, with all of my peers, um, but it had to be written differently because they're delivered as lectures. So the writing style is more engaging um, and, 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 and meant for a popular audience. And for me, that's, that's really a big change from my normal day-to-day -day work as director of the Citizen Lab. Uh, Andre mentioned a bit about the Citizen Lab uh, at, at the introduction. I founded the Citizen Lab in 2001. And, and the reality is, you know, 95% of what I do orbits around the work of this phenomenal lab and the colleagues that I have the great fortune to work with. Um, so just to give you a bit of background, uh, the Citizen Lab uh, does uh, investigations into 
um, abuses of power uh, in and around the internet and social media uh, worldwide. And uh, I'd say the signature of the Citizen Lab is our mixture of methods. So I had this one great idea many years ago uh, to uh, attract people who have technical expertise in the beginning, people from computer science and engineering science, and take their skills and orient them towards doing these very careful evidence-based investigations into topics like state censorship online, into targeted espionage and um, reverse engineering, maybe surveillance that is happening within popular applications and platforms. So the work is uh, very clinical and there's a lot at stake in the reports that we publish uh, in terms of the evidence. And so writing in that manner is, is much different. Uh, as I said, is more clinical. It's, it's, it's very precise. Um, we have to do a lot of due diligence to make sure that what we're writing is accurate, um, if, if for no other reason than to prevent some of the objects of our research from suing us, uh, which has happened in the past. Um, so that writing the, the Massey lectures uh, for me was kind of like being a musician who is unplugged. I could just free flow a little bit and have a bit of fun. Um, But of course I had uh, more serious objectives as well. I would say there were two main aims in writing uh, this book. Uh, The first was to pull together what I saw as all of the various pathologies around social media. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that most everyone recognizes that there is something wrong with our social media environment. It's causing a lot of problems on a number of of levels. It's associated with a lot of uh, nasty things going on in the world from disinformation to the kind of toxic public sphere that we experience on platforms like Facebook and Twitter. Um, We see a lot of uh, privacy and data breaches on an ongoing basis. And so what I wanted to do was address what was coming to me from my non-academic peers, from my friends in my neighborhood who would come up to me knowing what I do and and say, you know, what do you think about Facebook or social media? And how should I understand uh, the latest privacy scandal around Twitter or some other platform? And so I was, my main aim was to pull together what I see as these, I call them painful truths about social media. Truths, because I think there is an emerging uh, consensus among those who study social media about these problems, but painful because even though we can recognize there are these problems, they're very difficult to fix. Um, In fact, I think a lot of us don't want to address them squarely. Uh, Even though we know something's wrong, we still depend on these platforms. Look at us right now. Uh, In the midst of this pandemic, we've had no alternative but to rely on a platform like Zoom to do the type of work that we do. Um, So my first aim was to pull together all of the latest research in a friendly, accessible way and tie together these painful truths about social media. But that wasn't my only aim. I also wanted to go uh, beyond that and talk a little bit about solutions. Um, One of the frustrating things for me as a, a person who studies this area is that in going through what has been written Uh, and research by academics about the problems related to social media, I would be nodding my head in agreement 
yes, this sounds right to me. Okay, you know, I see there are all these problems. I get it. Um, but when you would look for a solution, you'd, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to find one. Usually an author will tack on a few uh, paragraphs at the end of an essay or a book saying, well, we need to fix these problems. We need to do something else. And they don't really have anything in terms of a solution. So I definitely wanted to take on that challenge and provide something like maybe not a series of recommendations so much as a set of principles about how we could think about um, uh, what, the, what uh, some kind of framework might be, how we can guide ourselves as we seek to, as, as the subtitle of the book says, reclaim uh, the internet for civil society. Um, in terms of the actual pathologies, I don't wanna go into a lot of detail here, um, I'd rather leave it to the Q&A and, and hear from everybody in the audience. But I really do think um, at the core to understanding the pathologies of social media, you can't escape the business model. Uh, what Shoshana Zuboff has, has, um, has, has phrased surveillance capitalism. I think a lot of the core issues that we see have their roots in this underlying business model which at its core is really about capturing and retaining users' interests. Um, so no matter how the social media platforms describe themselves and their products, wiring the world, connecting friends and family and so on, ultimately they all have one objective and that is to uh, make their platforms as compelling, as unquittable, as essential to our lives as possible so that they can monitor everything that we're doing as we're using their platforms for targeted advertisement purposes. Um, in other words, no matter how they describe themselves, one way to think about it is we're the livestock for their data farms. We're not actually their customers or their users. We're their raw material, if you will. And in order to accomplish that objective, the companies have invested in a lot of basic behavioral psychology. Um, and they use their massive computing power capabilities uh, to construct algorithms that push out uh, sensational, extreme content in our direction. The reason is human nature being what it is, we tend to be attracted to this type of content. Um, they also design their user interfaces in ways that someone like BF Skinner would immediately recognize uh, little uh, icons bouncing up and down, vibrations in your pockets. This is basic uh, Skinnerian behaviorism 101 being applied on a mass scale. Um, unfortunately, this also leads to a lot of the negative outcomes and externalities that we experience on a daily basis from the divisive, toxic public sphere, the type of conversations that we see, um, but also having this invasive by design, but also insecure, poorly regulated ecosystem creates enormous opportunities for malfeasance. And this is where uh, the work that I've done at the Citizen Lab comes into uh, play. Um, it turns out that uh, an environment that is designed in this manner is one that works uh, perfectly in favor of those who want to sow confusion, spread disinformation and conspiracy theories, and undermine uh, systems of, of accountability. And I believe this is one reason why we're seeing 
authoritarian practices spreading uh, worldwide. It's not that uh, Facebook, Twitter, and so on have de deliberately sought to cultivate those practices. It's that they've created an environment that turns out to be prop propitious for those sorts of practices uh, to spread uh, very widely. We see that indirectly in the growing number of dark PR, um, social media disinformation campaigns, which by the way, are spreading globally, becoming more professionalized. But we see it more directly in the type of targeted espionage that we at the Citizen Lab have uncovered directly. I have the story of our investigations into the um, spyware, the hacking of the devices of the inner circle of Jamal Khashoggi, the murdered Washington Post journalist. Uh, we were able to discover that um, a number of his colleagues had their phones hacked using very sophisticated uh, Israeli-based spyware. Um, that's a really good example of one of the syndromes that I talk about in the book. Um, digital technologies and social media have inadvertently, uh, to be sure, created an environment where autocrats can reach across borders uh, using a form of transnational digital repression to silence dissent, to neutralize political opposition in ways that simply wasn't possible uh, two decades ago, or at least would have been very challenging um, to do. Um, so we have to remember uh, platforms like Zoom are our windows to the world, but they also allow people uh, to look back at us. And um, that's, that's the ultimate, I think, um, concern that I have when it comes to the potential for the abuse of power related to this enormous digital exhaust uh, that we're constantly emitting. We have essentially turned our digital lives inside out. A lot of this has been done in a way that seems very convenient, um, but we've now uh, begun to realize that this has created all sorts of unintended consequences that we need to remedy. Um, I'll just say quickly in terms of the solutions, as I mentioned, I didn't want to write a book with you know, 20 recommendations at the end. This is not a policy book. Um, instead, what I did was draw upon my own background in political philosophy to talk about the principle of restraint. Uh, I really do believe that we need to think about applying principled democratic governance to states, to corporations, but also to ourselves. If we are going to reclaim the internet for civil society, um, we need to remind ourselves to put political principles before technology. We've lived in an era for now two decades or so where um, innovation has been heralded for its own sake as if it meant something beyond an empty term for technological progress. And we're now um, uh, reaping the consequences of it. Um, so we need to apply restraints to social media platforms, to governments, and even to ourselves, I would say, in terms of how we think about uh, communicating with each other and seeking and receive information. Uh, one last comment. Um, you know, a lot of people after I give lectures, especially on some of the nasty things that we unearth at the Citizen Lab, people come up to me afterwards and say, you know, that's it, I'm going to throw my device in the ocean and never use the internet again. And I say, no, that's not the right uh, response. Um, I encourage them not to do that. Uh, the fact of the matter is we live in an uh, increasingly finite political space with many shared problems globally. If we are going to solve them, we're going to need something like the internet or social media 
to govern ourselves and govern the planet. The problem is, as presently constituted around the business model of surveillance capitalism and all of its dysfunctionalities, social media um, is counterproductive to those larger aims. So with that, I'll turn it back to you, Andre, and look forward to a uh, conversation with everybody who's checked in. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. And um, I'm happy to report we have 246 people listening in and um, probably more on Facebook. And I would not be surprised if many of the people are actually uh, tuning in from different corners of the world, as is typically the case on these events. Um, you know, Ron, uh, like you, I have a background in political philosophy, so I was particularly interested in one thing you said in the second half of your talk, the principle of restraint. I'm hoping you can elaborate a little bit. Restraint by whom are we supposed to exercise self-restraint? Are, are citizens, are governments supposed to restrain themselves? Are we expecting Facebook and Twitter to get up one morning and, and act in a more restrained way? So well, tell us a bit more about what, what you have in mind and, and, and if it is entirely self-control, uh, how, how do we ensure that these big, powerful entities will engage in self-restraint? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I definitely don't mean by restraint some kind of corporate self-governance, which is very much in the air right now. Of course, the companies recognize that they're under the spotlight. There's a lot of scrutiny. Naturally, they're going to go out and lobby intensively uh, to have various rules and regulations made that benefit them. And, and even prior to doing that, they'll construct all sorts of self-governance regimes right. um, that, um, you know, uh, to be fair, may have some positive aspects to it, but they're really incomplete. They're fragments of a larger um, solution in, in my view. By restraint, I actually um, mean uh, the, a principle that is at the heart of something very simple actually, so simple, in fact, that I think many of us tend to forget where it comes from, which is uh, at the heart of liberal theorizing is the idea that we need basically to restrain through laws and regulations those who are in positions of power to prevent abuse. Um, most people recognize this through basic systems of checks and balances, or uh, separation of powers, as we know uh, from the founding of the United States. I think that's where most people recognize it. But that principle actually has a long tradition, going all the way back to ancient Greece. And typically, it's thought of in terms of republicanism, not to be confused with the uh, party that goes by the name in the United States, which is mostly antithetical to everything that I would advocate for in practice. Um, it boils down to basically putting in place mechanisms uh, that prevent the centralization and potential for the abuse of power. Um, now, I think that, um, you know, there are very basic forms of restraint um, that I talked about already, separation of powers, even uh, regular term limits and elections and so on. Um, however, we've now entered into a, a period of time, an era, if you will, where uh, given the volume of data that's in the hands of the private sector and in the hands of the state, often using the private sector as proxies for the collection of data, um, that we need to reinvigorate uh, principles and practices of restraint. What would that look like? 
Um, well, when it comes to the private sector, one of the most important principles of restraint um, in Republican theorizing is actually one that now is mostly seen as an economic measure, and that's antitrust. Um, if you look at the history of antitrust, and I know, Andre, I don't need to, to speak to you about this. You're very familiar. Um, but I, I talk a bit about Justice Louis Brandeis in my book and how he saw antitrust actually as much a political lever as an economic one. Uh, it was about preventing the centralization and concentration of power, of wealth in a few large organizations or corporations um, because he understood that that type of concentration can very easily lead to abuses of various sorts. Mm -hmm. So the government needs to step in. Uh, we need to break those companies up. Um, I think that's something that we definitely need to explore in an area, in an era such as our own, where we have these mammoth mm -hmm. platforms that dominate our lives, Amazon, uh, Facebook, and so forth. Um, when it comes to governments, I think here again, one of the often overlooked parts of social media is the way that this has led to a great leap forward in remote surveillance capabilities in the hands of law enforcement, intelligence agencies. Um, you have um, surveillance technologies essentially dual use. Um, so, you know, the platforms all engage in this highly invasive um, scrutiny of every aspect of our lives, our social relationships, mm. our movements, our purchasing patterns, our habits, um, increasingly our biorhythms, even our most inner thoughts for advertising purposes. Well, it's insatiable. It's irresistible for government agencies to look to that marketplace uh, in order to further information control for political purposes. And meanwhile, there is a huge unregulated private sector, uh, uh, an industrial complex, if you will, um, that is willing to sell it to them. Everything from mass surveillance technologies to uh, the spyware of the sort that we investigated, the Citizen Lab. We need to uh, impose, uh, in my opinion, uh, strict oversight mechanisms, um, which frankly have eroded over time. You know, there are periods decades ago when when they were applied and invigorated in various ways, usually after a scandal. Um, but I do believe given how awesome are these, these uh, capabilities, we need to uh, compensate for them with uh, new and stronger safeguards that check and constrain that, that power. So that's what I'm talking about in terms of restraints. It's not just something that we do as a norm, it's something that really involves uh, actual mechanisms backed up by the rule of law. Thank you for that clarification. So this is not self-restraint, it's externally imposed constraints of some kind or another. Uh, talking about Facebook, uh, I, was just, uh, I was just told that on Facebook, we have people following this event uh, from, among other countries, Kenya, Greece, Cambodia, India, Ireland, and Ecuador. You know, the awesome power of technology, I suppose, both for good and for, for evil. Let me pursue the same line of argumentation. Uh, 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 and um, maybe I'll put my hat on as an economist here for a minute. Um, I could not agree more that antitrust uh, has, be, has to be on the table when we're dealing with companies that are so large, which inevitably 
have some kind of market power. But antitrust is about prices and quantities. Antitrust comes into being when somebody decides that a large company is using market power to um, restrain output, to increase prices. So, you know, if you have a, an antitrust regulator step in, and parenthetically they have in many cases, you know, Microsoft, Apple, and a number of others have been, uh, Google have been, have been on the receiving side of fairly large antitrust actions, both in the US and, and, and in the EU in particular. But um, if, if those go forward, if they happen, if the parties are found guilty, you know, they will be told to sell this bit of business, you know, lower your prices, make sure that you don't package this particular service along with the other particular service. So that will have an economic impact. But it seems to me that the, the case you're making extends far and beyond economics. It has to do with privacy. It has to do with personal freedom. It has to do with the political impact of all these phenomena. So I guess one way of summarizing my, my, my question is this. The other concept that I thought you, you, that you, you introduced into the conversation, which I had never heard, is this notion of surveillance capitalism. Um, you know, I'm an economist, so I've, I've heard of, of state capitalism. I've, I've heard of, you know, about all kinds of capitalism, but I had not come across uh, the concept of surveillance capitalism. Aside from monopoly considerations, which are more or less well understood by, by economists, is surveillance, that is to say, is the use by companies of people's private information at the very core of this business? And if it is, is that something we can really address through um, antitrust legislation or do we need something more? The short answer is no, we can't just do it through antitrust. We need something more. You're absolutely right about that. Antitrust is one tool. Um, I think there are some areas, for example, around Amazon, which started out as a reseller of used DVDs and books. Right. Now is uh, globalization embodied in a single uh, company, really. Um, it's, it's gone beyond that to include transportation, logistics, et cetera, et cetera, uh, even film and television. Um, so I, I do believe there is... Um, an, an urgent need to, to break up some of these companies to prevent the abuse of power, not just for competitiveness reasons and, and pricing reasons, um, but really when you have such concentration of wealth in so few hands, inevitably it's going to uh, translate into political pressures of various sorts. And just on the face of it, I think you'd agree it's unjust and unethical to have you know, uh, whatever the percentages uh, now of these, um, you know, these vast billionaires, and, and most of it comes, a lot of it comes from these uh, tech platforms. But if we simply broke, uh, broke up a few of these companies, uh, we might be left with, um, instead of one Facebook, uh, 10 Facebooks and multiply all of the syndromes that I, that I talk about. So we need more than that. Um, you really get at it when you were talking about surveillance capitalism and some of the, the privacy issues here. Um, if you look at uh, how the industry operates and its principal objectives, which are to treat us as their raw material and what that means, it, it's about pushing sensors closer and closer to us, drilling into our daily routines in order to extract value uh, from us without thinking, though, of any of the unintended consequences. And frankly, without even worrying about some of the liabilities which are passed on to the consumers and experienced on a daily basis in terms of massive data breaches. 
Um, it has also spawned this uh, enormous subsector of uh, startups and other companies uh, most people have no clue about unless there's some kind of scandal. Uh, companies in the location tracking uh, space, companies in the data analytics space, um, companies that provide uh, dark PR services. So th these are companies that are uh, basically um, like amoebas feeding off of the, the uh, underbelly of, of surveillance capitalism, um, highly invasive, poorly regulated, and leading to all sorts of, of abuses. Um, a good example is what we see with um, services being provided to some of the world's worst, worst autocrats now, um, tapping into this marketplace to identify people's locations and their social networks to neutralize them, in some cases, even worse, to murder them. Um, so we need to get a handle on that, um, that hidden underbelly, if you will, and impose stricter regulations. Definitely that means real privacy safeguards. And, and by, I emphasize real because in Europe, in Canada, we have uh, privacy regimes, we have privacy regulators, but really they lack teeth. They lack resources, they lack capacity. Um, most of us experience in a day-to-day -day basis, the type of safeguards that come from something like the GDPR in terms of these consent banners that we simply click, okay, I agree. They're just giving us more uh, information. Very few of us read. You have to have a law degree to understand them. Um, what's going on in that consent, the terms of service, if you will, is, is a remarkable transfer of property. So when I consent to the Zoom call and I don't read all of the privacy policy, what I'm effectively doing is granting permission to the platforms to extract as much data as they can from us. Um, so I'm essentially becoming a, a surf if you will, to these platforms. That, that property relationship, which is completely imbalanced uh, in favor of the platforms for a whole variety of structural reasons, needs to be adjusted. And that has to come through principled democratic governance. Um, in other words, stronger privacy commissioners with real teeth. I find it kind of ironic, actually. I'll just say this one final remark. At a time, in an era as never before in human history, when we've turned our digital lives completely inside out and entrust ownership over the most minute aspects of our personal lives to the private sector, we don't have compensating safeguards to prevent the abuse of that data that is collected from us. Uh, we need to adjust that. And that's essentially what I mean by uh, principle of restraint in that regard. On. I'm sure we will turn to policy issues. I'm looking at the chat here and we have a number of questions on policy. But before we do that, let me just ask one question from my end. Uh, I'm looking at the intro to your book uh, and you talk about the real dark side to it all. You talked about cyberware and the dangers of that. You talk about uh, both Khashoggi's um, devices and allegedly Jeff Bezos' devices being hacked into and then you add we all think maybe i've been hacked too you wonder to yourself and suddenly we're all suspicious that that unsolicited text or email 
with an attachment, you know, was that dangerous? Uh, suddenly you feel that um, it is all a major source of personal risk. Those are your words in the intro. So I guess as we listen to you, uh, people out there and, you know, the countries that I mentioned, plus others, uh, are wondering, did it happen to me? Could it happen to me? Uh, have I been hacked? Could I be hacked one of these days? Um, if you're not Jeff Bezos, if you're not sitting on billions and billions of dollars, are we all at risk? Absolutely, we're, we're all at risk because we've been conditioned into uh, uh, entrusting our information to these companies who frankly are using all sorts of tricks and dark patterns and so on in order to gather as much data from us, uh, play upon our natural tendency to share, to socialize. So we live in a world where clicking on links is very common and, and accepting attachments and sharing information, clicking I accept. What's happened, an unintended consequence of all of this is that there are always in human history uh, malicious forces, uh, people out there who are looking for ways to take advantage of other humans, to look for the cracks and crevices in institutions in order to exploit them. Um, what's different now is that you have multi-billion dollar companies that have arisen out of the intelligence world um, that spend enormous hours with very talented personnel who themselves come from uh, the world's most elite signals intelligence agencies who do nothing but scour all of these platforms that we're using and looking for weaknesses to exploit them, packaging those up and selling them to government security agencies. Sad reality of the world that we live in as it stands right now is that uh, a large proportion of the world's governments are authoritarian or despots or autocrats. Um, this type of technology is typically marketed by those companies to assist governments in fighting serious issues of crime and terrorism. What we have found at the Citizen Lab, and I think the Khashoggi case exemplifies this very much, is in the hands of those type of rulers who see uh, journalists, human rights defenders, uh, research scientists, I would say even people like you and me, as threats to their regime, of course, they're going to take these tools and deploy them in that manner. Um, so one of the haunting parts of, of my career, actually, and has been building, it's, it's actually reaching a crescendo, is to see this epidemic of targeted espionage against global civil society. Now, most people might say, hey, I'm just a regular person. I've got nothing to hide. I'm not a challenge to anyone. Um, but that doesn't matter to a criminal, to an autocrat, to a despot. They're looking to take advantage of people. They're looking to abuse people. Um, it's, it's significant that all of the hundreds of cases that I've investigated along with my team, friends and family members are often targeted as a way to get at the devices and the networks of the principal targets. Um, and, and that's a very frightening thing. Uh, I think it, 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 it speaks, it illustrates um, an acute problem around this larger issue of social media and digital technologies universe that we live in right now. To me, it's the most urgent 
of all the problems that needs to be addressed because you have really a wild west. There is no international regulation over the surveillance industry that's meaningful, uh, that puts any type of restraint around this. Companies are able to sell repeatedly to the Saudi Arabias of the world and um, without any consequences. Okay, guys, so you heard it here first. Um, we are all at risk, or could be, even if you're not um, either a billionaire or a world-leading journalist. Um, it could happen to all of us. Okay, let's move on to questions from the audience, and we have plenty. Um, let me begin with Karina Velasquez, who's a student at Monk itself. And uh, Karina says, surveillance capitalism by both governments and corporations has given rise to phrases like data is the new oil or if the product is free, you are the product. From your experience and from your research, uh, I guess this is, of course, um, this is uh, directed uh, at Ron. Um, have you come across an effective way not to stop, but rather to limit or to cap data collection? How, how can we limit this? Is it taxation? Is it quotas? What um, what do we do to keep people from looking into every nook and cranny of our lives? Well, that's an excellent question. And I think the, the answer is challenging because um, of structural reasons. Uh, it's, it, it's very inconvenient to uh, step away from all of this, to resist it on a personal level. Um, And it's also, frankly, very difficult for individuals to address what we're talking about in the same way that if you say, if you compare uh, this problem around social media to the problems of climate change, we can all do little things. We can recycle, we can consume differently, but ultimately the problems of climate change are structural in nature and they require, require structural changes to entire industries and how governments operate. I would say the same is necessary here. Um, the reality is that um, our life, our lives are, are intersecting with a relentless uh, industry that pushes continuously to put more and more sensors in front of us that on the surface appear very convenient, very entertaining, um, very useful, um, but underneath, their ultimate purpose is simply to gather as much data from us as possible. So let me give you an example, uh, a Roomba vacuum cleaner. Some of you may have these, they just roam around your house vacuuming and some of the more advanced ones, well, they will map your house and the companies will take those blueprints and they will look to sell them to advertisers who may want to know the square footage of your house for real estate purposes or perhaps to sell you carpet or, or hardwood flooring or whatever. Um, just about every aspect of the digital world can be understood through that lens of higher and lower level functions. Um, it's very hard for an individual to resist that. So instead, we need to think about principled democratic governance over this tech space to make sure that there is some kind of break. Uh, that break has to come through institutions and agencies that are watching out for our rights, uh, for our privacy, and put strong limits on what companies can do, make sure that they're transparent and publicly accountable in various ways, um, and that there are stiff penalties uh, if they are caught transgressing those rules. 
that's one of the problems right now is that in Canada, for example, we have privacy commissioners at every province and one federally, very smart people, but you know, small staffs, limited budget. Uh, the fines they can impose are typically very meager, uh, a rounding error for a company like Amazon or Facebook. What would it take to correct all of that? We're talking about a wholesale change in how we think about governing the technological landscape. Thank you, Ron. Um, plenty of other questions. Let me uh, take one now from Sam Tucci, who's a um, Harvard University PhD student from Toronto. Sam asks, can public policy be separated from politics? Fairly terse question, but I imagine what he has in mind is, you know, we can discuss policy optimal policy, improved policy until we turn purple in the face. But policy requires politics, and politics, of course, is subject to lobbying, pressures, influence, and power. So do you think we will be in a position not simply to discuss policy, but actually to get policy approved and implemented? <laughs> yeah, that's tough. I would say it's tough because, at least as I see it, you know, one of the byproducts of this enormous concentration of wealth in the hands of so few individuals and large tech platforms is that they're able to take that wealth and translate it into ways um, to pressure policymakers and legislators to get what they want. Of course, there's nothing new in that. Um, but what's different now, I would say, is simply the scale of, of the effort that's available to them. In fact, through their own platforms in some cases, uh, which is a very dangerous prospect when you think about it. Um, you know, the whole Cambridge analytical, an analytical scandal was instructive. It may have been a little bit of a tempest in a teapot insofar as we don't know whether Cambridge Analytica was able to actually influence people enough to change their minds in significant ways or have a, 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 an impact on the election results and either... Brexit or in the United States. Um, but put that aside for a minute and just think about the prospect of that, that illustrative example and what that might mean in the future when you have tech platforms able to monitor everything we do right down to the neurological level. Uh, we're living at a time when internet-connected brain implants are not science fiction. Um, this is something that Elon Musk as a company, Neuralink. Uh, uh, and of course, this is a company that is guided by the principles of surveillance capitalism. It's but a short step for those executives, absent any restraints, to start thinking about how they can manipulate people in ways uh, that advantage them for their self-interest. And then all you have to do is think about, well, what does it mean if that power is in the hands of governments? Very scary prospect. Um, so, you know, uh, we have to make sure that uh, our political processes are transparent and publicly accountable if we want to remain in a world governed by liberal democracy, um, which uh, I'm sorry to say is under threat worldwide right now for a variety of reasons. I, I would also just add one point about public policy versus politics. I think there's a third dimension here, which is political philosophy. We often forget that... Uh, what we see as the world of politics, which is like a game, people jostling, uh, jockeying, jostling with each other for advantage in parliament or whatever, uh, as like a spectator sport. Um, 
And then you have uh, public policy, which is, you know, thinking about principles and, you know, advocating for certain types of legislation. But we often overlook or forget about underlying political philosophy. What are the principles? What are the frameworks that we should draw from that guide us collectively towards a better society, a more just society? Uh, these are often absent from the type of conversations which we're having, which is why at the end of Reset, uh, I devoted significant time to this concept of restraint as it comes from political philosophy. Actually, on political philosophy, while we're uh, on the subject, um, Devanshu Singh, who is a graduate student at Johns Hopkins in uh, the United States, uh, is hoping Ron can elaborate more on the political philosophy behind restraint. And he asks, can you tell us uh, how exactly would restraints on power changed the actual engineer structure of the internet? So maybe a bit about the philosophy and a bit about the results that philosophy could have if applied. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I'm happy to do that. Um, you know, the, the principle of restraint, for me at least, comes from a number of different sources historically, but I would say the most important is Baron de Montesquieu. And I have a, a little excerpt uh, a quotation from Montesquieu at the very beginning of my book about the potential for the abuse of power. Um, I particularly like the way in the spirit of laws, how Montesquieu talks about how liberal democracies are very fragile, first of all, and rare historically, and they usually only thrive under certain material conditions. And he describes these material conditions with reference mostly to Europe in terms of uh, the topography, uh, the geography, if you will. He thought that was an important restraint. It, it, it prevented consolidation of power, at least in that material context that he was writing in. Um, so, you know, a, a dictator may want to take all, over all of Europe, but at the time, given the technology, it was very difficult to do so. Why? Because you had these uh, material constraints, mountains, rivers, other topographical features that acted as a kind of retardant against the centralization of power. Fast forward to today. Um, it's really interesting to think about, just to take one example, law enforcement. Um, so as recently as 20 years ago, within my uh, lifetime, if a law enforcement officer had a suspect and they were trying to track down that suspect, wanted to verify the location identity of that suspect, they'd maybe have a photograph and the detective would go into a local pub and he would ask the bartender, have you seen this person? And, you know, it would take a lot of effort and time and so on. Most, most often they would strike out. Uh, now, with a simple click of a button, thanks to companies like Clearview AI, you can immediately not only get a facial recognition match in a lot of cases, but you can find out extremely detailed information about every aspect of their lives. Of course, this makes the job of law enforcement very easy, um, very efficient, um, but it's an almost entirely absent any of the type of safeguards to prevent the abuse of power. Human beings are human beings. Not all law enforcement is bad, but there always is in human institutions a number of people who are going to abuse their positions. 
And we've seen that historically. Uh, I don't need to tell anything like this to you, Andre, coming from Chile. Um, th this is something that's uh, endemic to the human condition. So we've gone through this fast forward in surveillance technologies at the hands of government security services. The prospects for the abuse of power are enormous. So I imagine what someone like Montesquieu, who I believe is the political philosopher of restraint, mm -hmm. what would he say were he dropped into our world? I think he would immediately zero in on the absence of material restraints around state power. States, you know, in the past, even 15 years ago, the houses of our home, uh, you know, the anonymity of a large crowd acted as a uh, indirect form of restraint against the abuse of state power. Um, now, uh, those barriers have been obliterated. Uh, potentially, state security services can not only see inside our bedrooms, they can see inside our minds. Uh, ask yourselves, what are the compensating safeguards in place to protect against the abuse of power in light of those changing material circumstances right now? I think Montesquieu would have a lot to say about that. Scary prospect indeed. Um, but maybe we'll be saved by an Enlightenment French philosopher. I have a lot of faith in philosophers. <laughs> so do you. Uh, what a good thing that is. We have about five minutes left and plenty of questions. Um, let me pick a couple more. Ezekiel Oweya, who is a graduate student from the University of Cape Town, now based in Sheffield, England. Uh, Ezekiel wants to ask a question which I'm sure you get asked all the time, Ron. But uh, because it is uh, a common question, that doesn't make it any less interesting. What about fake news? You know, what can we do about, what kind of regulation uh, will really make a dent uh, on authoritarian regimes using fake news to consolidate their power? Uh, that's okay. I'll try to be as, as quick as possible. The, the challenge right now is that you have a, a communications environment oriented around surveillance capitalism uh, whose primary motivation is to grab people emotionally. That creates the perfect ecosystem for the promotion of disinformation. So influence operations, as they're traditionally known, are in a golden age right now. And we're just actually at the beginning. Um, of course, we have to be very careful, though. I think this is what the question hints at, because right now you have a lot of world leaders who are using the excuse of fake news to clamp down on free expression, to censor content, to pressure social media platforms. Uh, so for you and I, fake news might be just what it is, false information being circulated. For someone like President Duterte in the Philippines, mm -hmm. fake news is anything critical uh, that is directed at him coming from a journalist like Maria Ressa, right? Um, so I don't have a simple solution for this. All I would say is we need to be very careful not to impose too many uh, constraints on social media platforms when it comes to regulating content in the name of fake news. Thank you, thank you. Um, maybe we'll have time for one question. Um, and um, I've just been sent what appears to have been the most voted question. People can express their support wow. for any given question. So here's the most voted question from Danielle Fanelli. I don't know where Danielle is. Um, and here's the question. Disinformation online is a real problem, but the use of concepts like truth, 
facts or scientific consensus in this context, claims Danielle, I'm not sure I would agree, but these are her words, is disingenuous and politically manipulative. No one can be sure to know all the facts on most issues. There, I agree. So how could we ever trust a system that would fact check conversations without effectively policing thought? <laughs> Andre, you want to take this one on? Uh, um, well, you know, I would take issue with with the, no, with the, the notion that there's no objective truth. I, mm. I had this conversation, uh, we had a couple of, 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 of weeks ago, uh, an eminent uh, Harvard legal scholar launching a book, and he was asked a very similar question. And he said, look, there are some objective um, facts in life, for instance, and he pointed to his head and said, I used to have hair, look at me, I am bald now, <laughs> that is a fact. Uh, so, yes, there are objective facts. So there I would take issue with the question, but um, uh, the fact that facts are objective doesn't mean that they cease to be complex, they're very complex, and, and I think that, that there's a very valid point in the question. Uh, if uh, complexity rules, and uh, if there may be... Uh, you know, more than one side to any complex issue, then how could one possibly say that is true, that is not true, I will allow you to say this, but not that, you know, we, we do go down a slippery slope. And of course, if the slippery slope is governed by, um, by an autocrat, by the, you know, Rodrigo Duterte's of the world, uh, one autocrat or quasi autocrat you mentioned, then the slippery slope may be more dangerous. So I've just restated the question, but I haven't given an answer. But, you know, yeah. uh, I'll, 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 I'll hand it over to you. You can provide a better answer than I did. I don't know about that, but I like your answer. I, I would say that, um, let me just say that I'm, I, I don't believe in big T objective truth. I don't want to get into too much epistemology here. I'm yeah. a pragmatist. I, I follow someone like John Dewey, I would say, or William James. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm a pragmatist in the sense that I do believe um, we can uh, come to some consensus, uh, but the consensus has to be arrived at through a deliberate procedure that includes evidence, that includes peer review. Uh, I'm a scientist. I, I'm, I believe that uh, science uh, is essential uh, to our society. Um, and I will say that we live in a time, though, when it's more than ever difficult to uh, have those norms uh, working and functioning proper, properly, if only because of the volume of information that comes at anyone at any one time, uh, accelerated through social media. Um, you know, this, we are rained upon with falsehoods. And the task of uh, fact checking, verification is made extremely difficult because of this. Um, we need to adapt in some way. Otherwise, we're going to be lost. I mean, the the alternative to saying there is no way for us to, you know, come at uh, truth in some godlike posture, which I agree with, is not to say, oh, who, who cares then? Anything goes. Uh, that's, that's anarchy. So we need some pragmatic middle ground, recognizing that social media right now throws up all sorts of hurdles in our way um, that we'll need to adapt to. It's not a very, not a, uh, it's a bit of a weak answer, but. You know, oh, it's not. Any answer that appeals to a middle, middle ground or a middle way is a good answer. Um, I, <laughs> I'm a buyer for that sort of product. So we have one minute and let me just, Jose Tapia asked a very concrete question and this will be the last one. Uh, it just follows up very nicely from the previous questions. He says, please tell me which is the specific market that we should be regulating? Is it the market for ads? Is it marketing? Is it the tech industry? Please illustrate thinking uh, from a 
particular regulation perspective? I think it, it, it's the, if I were to, to zero in on one, it would be what I call the cesspool of the location data tracking industry. So there is an enormous and an unregulated, highly abused sector that is, as I said before, feeding like, like uh, an amoeba off of, off of the big tech platforms, selling also to law enforcement and terrible bad actors and criminals even. We need to really get at that and make sure that people can't find out where I am at any one time uh, by checking my cell phone's GPS. That data is like an exhaust that's uh, completely unregulated, very harmful. All right. Well, I wish we could carry on, but uh, we're out of time. Um, I'm going to thank Ron again for joining us at this event and for bringing his book and the ideas in his book to us. You know, the topic could not be hotter. It could not be more timely or more topical. So thank you, Ron. Thank Let you. me remind people also that um, this is not just a, a book launch. It is also a program launch. We're celebrating the new LSE monk school at the university of toronto double degree so again if you have family or friends who are looking for a great double degree on global affairs and public policy uh you've come to the right place folks uh toronto and london last but not least uh this is one event uh in what is a fairly long and we hope uh, attractive and fun series of public events on issues of interest to you know, students and practitioners of public policy. So um, for more information, I'm not, not going to read the whole URL, but you can see it there on your screen. Um, both the LSE and the Monk School have uh, web pages in which you can find more info about future events. And I very much hope you will be joining us at some of those events in the not too distant future. To our friend Ron, to everybody who joined from many countries around the world, good afternoon and have a good time. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, Andre. Thank you very much, Ron. Bye. Have a good day.